Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us here at the Hot Stove Society Radio Show on Cairo Radio. It's uh, Chef Tom Douglas and my lovely uh, partner and business partner and home partner and <laughs> farmer, Jackie Cross. <laughs> Yay. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Chef Terry, Chef Terry is still in France. Uh, my guest is slowly... On a slow boat to Avignon or something. I uh, hope so. I want to visualize. I don't know exactly where he is. I think he's on the Rhone, uh, but uh, hopefully it's moving slow and they're taking a little market tours. And actually, at this time of day, he's probably getting ready for a little supper or a little, a little aperitivo, maybe. It Do might they have be uh, aperitifs in France, right? Not O's. That's Italy. <laughs> uh, we have a big show today. Uh, uh, there is. Um, Going to be talk about the Seattle Public School System's lunch programs and meal programs in, in general. Uh, there's going to be a chat about Karen Springs flowers, which is like the hottest thing going. It's hot. When you so go to hot. a grocery store, Jack, I know you go all the time because you're a, flower, you're a bread baker, but uh, it's hard to find. It's real hard to find, and it's going to get harder to find. So it's going to be super interesting. I'm really excited to talk to him about the flower. So. Perfect. Uh, we are going to uh, have a little hooray for rosé time. Woo-hoo! Pamela has invited her husband from Pike and Western Wine Shop to join us, and we're going to tell you about some ones that are personal favorites from her and Jackie, but also ones that you can actually buy. Like my personal <laughs> favorite is the Bandol rosé. It's super expensive, but it's it's like the one time You're a year. Fancy. I'm fancy, but it's it's hard to find. You can't really find it. it's on allocation, so it's hard it's hard to find it. So I think that's about it. Of course, we have food for thought, tasty trivia at a whole different time today. We're going to do that right at the top of the second hour, so you're not going to want to miss that. Okay, so hang with us because Emmy's going to stay for it. Emmy from the Seattle Public School is going to stay for it. Good. Let's get right into our taste of the week. You know, Jack, I told people a week or two ago that we had. Uh, you know, we had the guy from Palouse River Beef Company on the show, Richard. And so we went ahead and ordered a quarter of a steer. And I haven't been to the farm much, so I'm not really aware of how it came out. So you've been to the farm, and you've been cooking <laughs> some New York. Yeah, I just cooked a couple of those New Yorks the, um, the other day for Sharon and I, and they are friggin' delicious. So good. Super nicely marbled. It's a Wagyu Red Devon Cross mix. Um, all of the meat that we got from him was, and um, they came out perfectly. I did Pam's favorite, the reverse sear, but I did a little bit differently. I did mine stovetop um, and just like really slowly in a cast iron pan to start with until it came up to almost up to temperature and then just cranked it hard and um, seared up the outside. And so you got a nice crust? Got a really nice crust. The meat was delicious, super tender. Um, it's very well marbled. It was really, really good. Now, when you do that, uh, does it render out more fat, too, or does the no, fat stay really. in the steak? The fat stays in and stuff. It just, because you do it really slow. It's on a low, uh-huh. so you're not, you're not actually getting it to a temperature where it starts. So, Pam, how do you do your reverse here? Are you doing yours in the oven and then into yes, a pan? usually in the oven, but in, in the cast iron. what temperature and to what temperature? Um, I keep it in the cast iron at about 250 and take it out while it's still at about 90 degrees and then go for the sear. On in the, Taking the uh, meat out while the pan continues yeah. to come up to heat. So it's got to come out from its warming stage right. to sear stage. I'm surprised that's not too rare for you. So if, it, if you're taking it out at 90, what are, by the time you put a sear on it, what's it coming off at? Uh, one thirty. So medium. Yeah. Okay. 
because you know me, I'm a bit of a weenie. Well, I know, no, 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 I know you like it more medium. I kind of, I kind of do too, because to me, the raw beef tastes like nothing, and the cooked beef, it's like tuna, right? It has very little flavor until you put a sear on the outside, and all of a sudden, it tastes yeah, you like, get that nice crust on the outside, good salty, salty crust, uh, soy sauce crust. <laughs> really? Is that a little secret? Yeah. Tell then me. It, then it's you know so brown, and it adds that saltiness. Mm-hmm. You got to have oh. some so- soy in the oil. Wow, I did not know that. Never tried it. I'll make it for you. <laughs> Thanks. That'd be nice. <laughs> uh, so, any other tricks for you, Jack? Do you for steak? I like mine pretty plain. I do um, just salt and pepper, a heavy crust of salt and pepper, um, and then maybe top it with just a small pad of butter when it comes out. Mm-hmm. Mm, lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, my taste of the week is the Policio Chorizo. You know, uh, if you watch uh, King 5 television, you'll, they have a show called Evening, and I still want to call it Evening Magazine. After all these years, you know, that hasn't been Evening Magazine for at least 10 years, but I still, even though I do it every month, I still want to call it that. Uh, but Evening, and I do two or three spots a month uh, on that show, and this week I thought I would try demystifying chorizo sausage for the viewers. Because it seems to me when you go to... Chorizo has become a hot ingredient, so in turn, everyone's making it, right? Everyone's trying to jump on the bandwagon. And there's two major kinds of chorizo that I have seen. One is the kind of dry cured chorizo that is sometimes smoked, sometimes not. But it is, it's the kind of chorizo you pull out of the package and you can eat it right out of the package. Uh, coro, which more, is a local... More similar to like a salami kind yeah. of thing, yeah. Coro for, oh. from here in town makes a pepperoni-style uh or makes a chorizo that's sliced. I had the one from Olympic Provisions, which is more like a hot dog chorizo. I think you had a bite of that yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. And then I had the Spanish version, which is classic. What I had in Barcelona, when I fell in love with chorizo, it was in Barcelona at a tapas bar, where it's just like, mm. like Jackie just said, it's a sliced, thin salami. Then I had the Mexican-style versions of the ground meat or minced meat, uh, and uh, the one from... Uh, Uli sausage, who makes a link, but a fresh link has to be cooked. What what makes them chorizo across all those different? Is it just it's the seasoning? It's usually the, the piedmonton. It's uh-huh. it's and garlic. Is there's very little other ingredients in there. The Spanish tend to use white wine in their mix. The Mexicans uh, tend to use vinegar in their mix, and so it's, it's they're very similar. Except one is uh, raw, right. and one is cured. And I just wanted to call out the policio. I see it in all the grocery stores. And you need to use it. You used it last night when you made your paella, but you need to use it uh, sparingly. Like I think of when I go to Chinatown Barbecue Window where you take a little bit of the pork and put it into your soup, right? You don't need a pound of the pork. I mean, I do, but you're not supposed to eat (laughs) a pound of the pork. So the chorizo is meant as a flavoring and not as an entree. That's a good, yeah, yep. a good way to think about yep. it as an accent flavor. As an accent flavor, it's, right. Yeah, it brings in a little smokiness. And but the, this yeah. particular brand, I did the five taste test. This particular brand, really delicious. We just had it again. And yeah. they make a uh, picante version, a little bit spicy version, and the regular. It's not sweet. They often called the, the non-hot uh, paprika dolce paprika. So... But and you can sweet. also dice it and just add, a, you know, a little couple tablespoons of it to like scrambled eggs, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I use the Mexican. I, I brown that up and mm-hmm. I use that with scrambled eggs and a little warm flour tortilla. Mm-hmm. So, so tasty. Anyway, that's my taste of the week. 
we wish Chef uh, on the sh- in the chapeau all the best as he continues his foray throughout France, and we miss him. But uh, frankly, Jackie is a lot cuter than he is. <laughs> uh, it would be nice to be floating down a river in France right now. I yes, say. it certainly would be. That's for sure. It's time for the peak of the season farm report from Prosser Farm, our little our little uh, vegetable haven over there in Prosser, Washington. When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show here at Cairo Radio, but we actually tape here in downtown Seattle at the beautiful Hotel Andra. We are uh, upstairs on the second floor right above Lola, and it's super fun and beautiful. You should come visit us sometime. If you want a ticket to the show... You simply go out to hotstovesociety.com and buy a ticket. It's 30 bucks. You get coffee and a breakfast sandwich and our titillating company. <laughs> titillating, definitely. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, let's do a farm report. You know, every once in a while, Jack, I know we call you oftentimes from the farm. Right. And you give us an update of where things are. Uh, I know when I was over there two weeks ago with our management team, you were still putting stuff in the ground from the greenhouses Correct. that you planted how many months ago? Uh, started in mid to late February for yeah, a lot of it. Yeah. Exactly. So you had a very cold. Yeah, I was just going to say, what What am I wearing today? Yeah. It, it's a turtleneck sweater. Yeah. And it's June. Yeah. And that is kind of what That's the, the story farm report of, yeah, is the right story there. So. Are the tomatoes wearing turtleneck sweaters? I wish they were. They would probably look better. She put the tomatoes in the ground like, finally, finally, finally put the tomatoes in the ground. And then that night we got 50 mile an hour winds. And all of them were just like laid over on their side yeah. going like, please oh. help. Farming is not for the timid. It's always, I mean, it's always something. Yeah. I feel like all I do is complain. It's either the weather or the wind or the bugs or the heat irrigation. or whatever, or the irrigation. There's a lot of complex parts of farming. But um, everything pretty much is in the ground at this point in time, which is very nice to get out of the greenhouse and get growing. Um, lots of tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, all the regulars. We're pulling radishes and arugula and spring onions Lots of herbs right now is what we're harvesting. I had spring um, onions in my clams yesterday. It was they were they're delicious. so good. Yeah. yeah, they're so sweet and stuff after they've spent the winter in the ground like that. Yeah, and busy doing rotational crops, getting some lettuces and stuff like that going. I'm going to cut my first uh, lettuces this next week. So go and back then, to the onion for a second. You said after spending the winter in the ground. I didn't realize spring onions uh, spent the winter in the ground. Yeah, they're planted in the fall. Um, late in the fall and stuff like that, and then they stay um, throughout the winter uh-huh. and then pop back up in the spring and stuff. But they get that sweetness of being cold all yeah. winter. So yeah, I know you've pulled uh, parsnips and beets and stuff after they winter. And carrots and also carrots. over winter, yeah. and I say those were. Uh, you have to fight the dog, uh, Fava, <laughs> Fava, for the turnips, right? Fava she loves, loves the turnips. Yeah, she uh, she gets in there and digs them up herself and carries them around and is quite proud. So it's pretty cute. Uh, what are you most excited about that's going to be available to us as restaurant people? Uh, well, I'm trying up? for the first time in about three or four years, I'm trying sweet potatoes again. And um, I have a different variety that oh, should be yeah. super fun. I think so. I'm excited to see. I had a couple of years ago, I had a great crop of them. And then the next year I had a not a great one. So I, then I felt defeated a little bit. So, But I'm going to try them again because I love sweet potatoes and I hope that they do really well. Um, I searched out some varieties that should do better in our weather and stuff here because usually they like it pretty hot and humid. We've got the heat, but we don't have humidity over there. 
Um, so I'm super excited about that. I am still doing some trial work for Row 7, which is a, a seed company based out of New York City, and they send seeds out to different farmers to try them um, across the country to, and then report back on how their seeds germinate and how they do in different climates. Um, so I'm trialing some peppers and some onions for them this year, which is always kind of fun to be part of a bigger project a little bit. Uh, um, well, I'm looking forward to the strawberry patch popping up. They are going. They, they are, are, yeah, are we, are we they close? Are just, they are just there. Unfortunately, it, they are ripening, but it's been so cool. They're not as sweet as normal, but we're supposed to start getting up into some high 70s and stuff this uh, week, and hopefully that will bring them on and sweeten them up. Some, sometimes they ripen, and they're just not that good because you need the heat to get that sugars going in them. Now, the strawberries at our house in North Ballard, um, the bunnies keep eating them. The bunnies the whole pl- eat them down to the ground. Yeah. There's so many rabbits. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. Tell me about, well, one of the things that's cool about having Prosser Farm that I never really thought about before we started it is you kind of, you don't really horse trade with your neighbors so much, but a little bit. And a you find bit. neighbors that grow specialty items, like yeah. you're getting Connie Crawford's asparagus, asparagus right now, which has been super delicious. Yeah, super delicious. Um, it's great. She's got, I mean, their main crop is wine grapes and stuff, but she has a couple separates and blueberries. She's got a couple side plots of different things that they grow also, and one of them is asparagus. And uh, a lot of times she just takes it to the pickling plant in Sunnyside, and that's where you get your pickled asparagus that you see in jars in the, mm-hmm. uh, um, on the grocery shelves. But then I buy some from her, and, and, um, and she gives it to me at a nice price for the restaurant, so it's great. And I'm coming back and forth every week anyway, so I can bring it for the restaurants. So I look forward to that every year. I, I know, know that the too. whole team does. And it comes in, and when you look at, when you're getting asparagus from, direct from the farmer, you get what they call field, field cut. cut totes. Mm-hmm. And it's 25-pound tote, and it comes in all different sizes. Typically what happens is they take those totes, the big asparagus farmers take them in, and they get assorted they by get side, sorted, right? There's right. the pencil, there's the standard, and then there's the, the fatties, the, yeah. which is my favorite because they, they cook up like steak on the charcoal grill. Yeah, they're so nice to put on the grill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's got a new um, a new couple acres growing and stuff this year, and so they've been really thin. They're the pencil ones, which is funny because hers were she's always grown the fat ones before. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting playing with the skinny guys, but they've been great on the serious pie pizzas. They're perfect. Right, and they're tasty. You know, yeah, sometimes they're still asparagus delicious. is all Absolutely. water, and it doesn't really yeah. taste like much. Uh, no. I find this particular crop to be very green and well. They're and getting tasty. to the restaurants within a day of being cut, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So, and your herbs are uh, the herbs bountiful. are awesome this year. Your I think herb that beds from are, the coolness is they yeah. are doing well because they do like a you know they get a little pooped out when it gets really hot, but um, right now they're gorgeous, very lush, and they bolt when it gets hot they're too, bolt, and, you, and they bolt. start to get. Woody and yeah. not so delicious. Yeah, are they all perennials? Most uh, all of them are perennials. Yeah, they come up okay. every year. So usually we hack them back pretty severely at the end of the year. Some of them, like tarragon and oregano, will go completely dormant and you won't even see them. Um, and then they all pop up in the spring, and then they go real quick, which is awesome. Okay, so what is going to be the next natural disaster that's going to ruin part of <laughs> your crop? What are you most concerned about weather-wise? Haven't we had them our, all? Oh I mean, God. we just had a huge thunderstorm and heavy rain yeah, over there. Yeah, it's pouring over there right and now, people which don't is realize weird. that heavy rain like that, 
I mean, they think about hail ruining a crop, but heavy rain can knock blossoms yeah. off. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially things that were like, well, I just planted all the potatoes. And for them to sit in that much water at this stage when they're just planted, that can be problematic because they can rot easily if, they're, if they get mm-hmm. too wet down there. Um, so well, it's always sort of a balance. your beans, right? You put your beans in and then it was too cold to germinate. Too cold to germinate. So I had to like, because we were freezing up until... Two weeks ago, yeah, which was nuts. But you're gonna have plenty of water. Mm. I think we'll have plenty of water. <laughs> we actually have Lake Prosser right now because one of the irrigation lines right. blew yesterday, and yeah. uh, oh, I was supposed to come back and stuff, but I had to stay over an extra day just because we had water running everywhere. It was nuts, but all fixed, back on track. But there's a there are funny districts over on the east yeah. side that are dry, right? Microclimates that haven't been getting the same amount same of water. water. Well, it depends. They're, the water is managed by two different organizations throughout the Prosser area, and um, they have access to different sources of water. So some of them, like one side, one company can run out, and the other one will have plenty because it's better managed and they've been using less of it. So we luckily are on a really nicely managed water system, and we've only run oh. out in the last... 12 years, like once or twice for like a week or two. So, so just to wood. be clear, Pam, uh, it's all, it's got nothing to do with the weather in the area where the farm is. It's mm-hmm. got everything to do with the snowpack up in the right. mountain. Mm-hmm. And how that water is managed when it comes down off the mountain and it goes into separate reservoirs and then those agencies monitor it and release it uh, on a certain schedule. And it's dependent on that management is how the how you end up with water all se- season. So we, we know generally that we're going to get water the first couple of weeks of April at some point, but they decide when, and then we know generally it's going to get cut off right around October 15th? It goes, yeah, mid-October and stuff. Sometimes later. This year we got water really early because there was so much water in the reservoirs already um, that they had to start moving some of it out. Interesting life, this farming life. Not for the faint of heart, I think. After a long winter, she's raring to go, and then within a couple of months... It's like, why am I doing this? She's tempered, tempered a bit uh, when, on her farming opportunities so anyway that's the prosser farm report uh emmy collins is here she's the executive chef of seattle public schools and is going to update us on school lunch and maybe we'll spend a segment on her life story which is super interesting when we come back that's uh the hot stove society radio show on cairo radio 97 3 fm Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society show. We're hosted today by the none other than Jackie Cross. Happy to Woo-hoo! be here. Thank you. Crosser Farm, farmer-in-chief, also owner of, uh, uh, 50% owner of, our, oh, not anymore. We gave away some of our business. Oh, we did. Uh, yeah. Shoot. With our daughter, uh, owner of this lovely <laughs> Those restaurant. kids group. get everything. <laughs> and E.T., a- a- our partner, who has some history with Pamela in this next topic that we're going over. Pamela, how many years ago did we... Uh, Eric had all his kids in public school at the time, I think. Yeah, and it was so almost ten years ago. The they, project they asked me to be like to do some work on, it, and I said, Mm-mm. "My kid went to private school, and <laughs> she's been done for ten years. He's got kids in public in school. public school. He has to do it." And so he did. He jumped right in, and you jumped in too with no kids. Yep, yep. No, um, it's one of my life's passions to get kids excited about healthy food. Yeah, and crafts and crafts. The combo <laughs> is like perfect. Which would not be like crafts, macaroni, and cheese. No. <laughs> okay, so uh, in that vein, we've invited Emmy Collins here. She's the district executive chef for the Seattle Public Schools. And, and welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You moved here from Brazil, is that right? I did. I moved here when I was six years old uh-huh. with my family. Mm-hmm. 
and tell us about your story. How yeah. you, that's a long ways away ago from where long you are sitting ago. right now. Um, so yeah, I was born in Salvador Bahia. My family and I moved. Uh, my mom been a chef since I was born. She owned her own oh, catering really? company. Oh, really? Is that yeah. that's so mm-hmm. cool? Yeah, she owned her own catering company in uh-huh. Brazil, and it was like out of our house. So I was always like around Involved. that in Brazil, exactly. Um, all the gatherings w- was in our home and everything. So um, she moved here, and our family opened up the first Brazilian restaurant in Seattle, Tempero do Brasil, which went on for 20 years or so. Different yeah. than those steakhouses that you see? Very different yeah. than those steakhouses. It, it Featured, you know, dishes like from our region and like the national dish of Brazil, feijoada. Um, the steaks, like that steakhouse, churrascaria, I feel is more like of a southern Brazil thing. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't like, wouldn't classify as Brazilian food, but I feel like it's very, you know, people, when they think Brazilian food, they think like steak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, those, yeah, those big skewers. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly, which Eat. is great, but there's so much more beyond so that. paleo so keto <laughs> paleo, exactly um yeah so then my family I, I came here to seattle when i was six my family opened um Tempeta de brazil when i was in middle school so i really truly like grew up in like the food industry like mm-hmm. with my parents um and then i you know hit my teenage years and i was like i don't want to work with you guys anymore <laughs> that's it's funny. so annoying that sounds, that big, sounds very familiar yeah. yeah well i'm paying back now because my daughter is about to go to high school next year so uh, i'm like oh my gosh yeah. i'm sorry mom pay back for sure um so i worked at a couple other restaurants around town and i always thought that i was going to go into like the front of the house like management type of feels people's person liked you know serving and management and all that but I felt like I kept coming back to home um, after like being a server and like kind of just trying to copy what all the chefs were doing like re- replicating all the dishes and so I'm like you know I'm gonna go to culinary school I think I want to like focus on food um, so I went to culinary school um, at that point my daughter was about like four or five years old um, and also being, a, I went to culinary school and I wanted to be a chef but I also didn't want to own, open a restaurant which was like kind of like unheard of <laughs> like mm-hmm. at kind that time it was like you're if you're gonna go to culinary school and you're gonna be in food it's like you have to own a restaurant or you have to work in a restaurant right. um but i knew i didn't because my parents were never home it's a tough life you guys know mm-hmm. yeah. you know and i and my little um daughter i didn't want to do the same to her right. um so i luckily like found a personal chef job right out of culinary school um and that kind of just took off like my clients would like refer me to other clients and i found myself starting to do like dinner parties and that kind of blossomed into like my catering company um so i did catering for um a few years and then my family wanted to my parents were over it they wanted to close the restaurant after almost 20 years um and it was like such a like important place for all of us like for the brazilian community for our like family and it was like nobody could like you know cope with the fact that it would close so like everybody's like looking at me because i'm the <laughs> chef i'm the next chef in line so i did take over the restaurant i like renovated opened my own concept but because i had already told myself time and time and again that i didn't want to be a restaurant owner i didn't want a restaurant i feel like i wasn't like a thousand percent in it so um we closed right before the pandemic <laughs> so good timing. Like, good it was actually good timing yeah. yeah and that's when i found um that's when i yeah saw the posting for the job the district executive chef job with Seattle Public Schools, and obviously I grew up going to Seattle Public Schools. My mom was a culinary teacher there for a few years, and um, I worked I with I've her. I met class. your mother a couple of times. I think so. Yeah, yeah she's uh, been on here, yeah. I feel like. 
um, yeah, so I feel, it felt like familiar. It felt like an important like job that I wanted to like be a part of and make some changes. So kind of just well, let's go like, back just a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So right out of culinary, you were the personal chef. Yep. And when you're cooking for a family like that, it's not like cooking in a restaurant. No. Sometimes I think people think, well, if I have my own chef, I just I want spaghetti and meatballs right yeah. now, or I want, you know, what an omelet. But mm-hmm. do you have to think nutritionally? Did that help prepare yeah. you for this job that you got to? For sure. So like, and every family is like so different. Some family, yeah, some family like didn't have like any nutritional guidelines. Other were like extremely strict. Like I'm talking like vegan. Couldn't have any nightshades, like very, very strict. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what am I going to make for them? You're um, just going to put a pillow yeah. on their head and sleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. uh, but yeah, and also like almost none of my families are like, they, they, they want me to choose the menu for the, so it's not like, okay, I'm in the mood for burgers today. No, it's like literally like, give me what you got. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very, very different from a restaurant job. Absolutely. And then uh, the other thing I know about personal chefs, Desi, our chef from Carlisle, went to become one. But do you? Uh, he would actually make food to take on their jet. And you know, yeah. you, it has to be food that has good legs can a last. little bit. Yeah, yeah, it can last and have different mm-hmm. purposes. Exactly. I think only like one or two families that I worked, like I would serve right after I cooked. Most right. families, like I'm cooking for their jet vacation right. or for like later on that day or snacks for the kids right. um, throughout the week. Yeah. So and, and you're also not following that menu of a restaurant every day. You're kind of having to get creative. So they're not bored with you. And yeah, yeah it, it takes a lot of creativity and yeah. Hopefully they like Brazilian food. They did, but I rarely get to cook. Got to cook Brazilian food for them. I would sneak it in every once in a while, but mostly it's just like you know your regular everyday. Like when you think of like home cooked dinner, you know, yeah, food, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. We're talking with Emmy Collins. Uh, she is the district executive chef for Seattle Public Schools. And when we come back, we're going to take one minute to talk about her chopped episode victory. And then we're going to move right into seeing uh, what you found in the Seattle Public Schools when you got there and how you're changing it, what, what people can expect or hopefully expect moving into the future. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. I'm joined by Jackie Cross, my wife and business partner. Chef Terry is still in France, floating down a river somewhere, and hopefully making delicious food for his guests. In our studio right here, Emmy Collins is here. She's the district executive chef for the Seattle Public School System. Emmy, we heard a little bit about you. Uh, people want to know about your Chopped episode. Yes. Did you kick some butt? I did. I kicked, well, I don't, spoiler alert. Uh-oh. I did. <laughs> has it not been shown yet? It has. Oh, okay. <laughs> For those who haven't seen it, yes, Chop Champion. It was so much fun. Was I'm it? Like, it was. Where do you film it? Um, we filmed out in Jersey. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just show that to your daughter. Say, who's cool now? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they actually got to watch it at school. So uh-huh. she was, oh, she, yeah, awesome. her teacher put it on for them. So she was super proud. I was like, okay, cool mom. Yeah, point. Like, um, it was so fun. I feel like I definitely love like competition, mm-hmm. like in the kitchen. The only competition I've ever j- entered was Iron Chef. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh. And, and it's they, coming they want me to do it again. I said, well, I won the first time. Why should I, do- why, <laughs> why would I risk it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. my title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they keep playing it. So I'm like a hundred and oh, you know? it's like I keep winning every time. Um, let's talk about what you found when you took over at the, your part of the Seattle public school yeah. situation and 
uh, what you found. Kind of explain what what is the job. What does that yeah, mean? Yeah. So well, so I'm the executive chef. My job is to really create all the menus for like all 100 over 100 sites that we have. Um, I procure the items, try to find vendors. Um, yeah, so anything to do with Crazy. like the food, like the That's decision big. maker of like what the kids are eating is is me. It's huge. Yeah. So how many yeah. meals a day does that represent? Oh my gosh, I think now we're up to like around thirty thousand meals a day. Um, through a pandemic, it was like even more. We were putting out a lot of food because it was for the community, right? Um, and not just students. So yeah, we put out a lot of food. We feed a lot of kids, and a lot of these kids like this is their only meal that they have for the day. Right. Yeah. So it's very very important. Um, I mean, we hear that we hear yeah. that, and I think people brush shut off sometimes is it really true it is really true Uh you know we work with different organizations youth that don't like are living in shelters don't have a home so it's real it's like true life out there for Mm -hmm. some of them this is and some for some of them this is like the only like nutritious food that they can you know fresh fruit and veggies like they don't they don't have access to that um when they leave school so what have you you've been there two years now yeah almost three actually in in september so what did you find when you got there what did you what was on your on your things i've got to do this right away i've got to do this right away so the district chef position this is the first time that um it's been they've been they've had a chef at Santa Mm -hmm. Public Schools um uh, Aaron um, Smith the director of culinary services created the position so when he came on board things were kind of moving towards like pre-packed food for the kids more packaged food like lunchable Um, kind of pre-packed stuff like that as well as like kind of tv dinners where Uh like everything was like just like frozen pre-packed and like sent off to the schools so a lot of the schools were being kind of like, you know, back in the day, it was like they had cooking kitchens. They right. actually cooked in the schools. Right. and There were um, lunch ladies that cooked yeah, real food. Exactly. But, like, over the years, that kind of moved towards just, like, a reheating kitchen mm-hmm. and, like, more prepacked items. So that's what Aaron found when he came in. And he's pretty new, too. He was only there a year before I got there. Um, so when I got there, he was already, you know, converting everything back into, like, a cooking kitchen. And he had a plan and a vision to bring more culturally relevant food, more scratch-made uh, items from our central kitchen. Um, so he's the one who's really, like, set that plan and that goal out for Seattle Public Schools. So when I came on board, I had a list of to-dos to mm-hmm. kind of, like, make put that to work, um, which... We've been trying to do, um, and then the pandemic happened. So, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And what's your uh, what's your favorite accomplishment so far? I mean, what have you seen that you thought of, and it's actually in yeah. production now? Oh my gosh, there's actually been so many things that I've been able to do. Um, See, I find that hard to believe. It. You always think about these bureaucratic systems, like I know. The, the school system. Yeah, that would be really it, difficult. It is very difficult, but I try to think of like the small wins. You know, like there's always gonna. I mean, it's over 100 sites. We're serving like thousands and thousands of meals a day. Like, we're not gonna get it right every time. It's kind of hard to make sure that everybody's following what mm-hmm. I'm putting into place. Um, so. I try to kind of like just go for the small wins. I mean, during the pandemic, we were actually really successful while most districts like in the nation really were kind of going into like providing just like boxes of like groceries and just like prepacked food for people. I took that as an opportunity to like test out um, like our recipes, like globally um, relevant recipes and scratch made items because it was um, it's easier to do when everything was coming out of the central kitchen as opposed to like having to train all our staff and making sure everything, mm-hmm. you know, when school is, is in session to do that. Um, we were able to get Injetta on the menu, Injetta with, mm-hmm. like, the lentil stew, which I think is the first time that's ever Injetta, the bread. The, the bread, yeah, yeah. So, like, we did yeah. the full Ethiopian meal with, like, a lentil stew that they have. 
um, I don't want to butcher the name, so I'm able to say it. Um, We put like a Somali chicken stew on the menu. So I'm really proud of being able to put like global um, cuisine onto the menu because our student body is so diverse, you know, and I know firsthand because I was a student, you know, at Mm -hmm. Seattle Public Schools and I did immigrate from Brazil and I would be starving. Like, I was one of those kids who, like, did not eat at mm-hmm. school um, because I was used to having home-cooked meals at home for lunch, you know, in Brazil. And, like, coming to Seattle and, like, corn dog on a stick. What is that thing on a stick? It was just, like, not appetizing right. it's not to nutritious, me. and it doesn't no, make your brain work better. No, exactly. No. So I feel like if I at least, like, came and I saw, like, a Somali chicken stew with rice, that would be more comforting to me than, like a slice of pizza or a hot dog, you know, because that's the time that home cooked meal is what um, I craved as a kid. So I know that like, you know, our students of like different cultural background, like can all relate to that. Um, so I'm really proud of being able to like put those dishes um, on the menu. Mm. When you put something like that, do you do it across all of your schools or you try and target different just to different yeah. areas? So we did a lot during the pandemic. So that was kind of like the whole Seattle area. Um, now that school is in session and we're doing that, I, it depends on the dish. If we're able to easily make it in the central kitchen um, for that like big amount, um, we send it out. Only when we can control it and I can make it in the central kitchen do we send it out to all of the schools right now. Because um, we're sh- short-staffed, you know, like our, our employees need oh, training. Yeah. yeah, everybody, right? Um, so, like, we have different... I, I started Taste of SPS, which was really to, like, focus on, like, locally made um, items and mm-hmm. stuff. So that I did 10 schools per month so that, like, at the end of the school year, every school would have at least done it once. Um, and it's different dishes every month. Hmm. That's awesome. It's fascinating. Do you get the dreaded pushback from uh, people that feel like, well, they immigrated, they should eat American food? Or do you get those kind of letters still? Yeah, not so, so, like, they don't put it as bluntly as that. (laughs) You know, they, like, they're like, kids don't want to eat that. Kids don't want that. Like, you know, can we get pizza, cheese pizza, quesadilla? You know, they just, that's the usual line that we get. Kids Uh don't want to eat that. And that's not true because, I mean, first of all, like, I'm a mother. I have three kids, so Mm -hmm. I know (laughs) what kids, and they're very different. You know, I do have one that only wants chicken tenders and fries. (laughs) My other one loves any type of food. So kids are different. I'm not going to target just like one um, demographic of mm-hmm. kids. I, I'm trying. We're trying to please everybody, you know, and introduce everybody to different things so they can make their own decisions, you know, instead of going into it thinking kids' food mm-hmm. and just like making that decision for them. Yeah. Then there's the whole, you know, religious religion based yeah. menu yeah. too, right? Exactly. The yeah. Somali kids, um, mm-hmm. many are Muslim, I would think, and yeah. that don't want to eat pork or whatever it is. Yeah. That, yeah. And so the district did. This was before I even came on. They, we are a pork free district for that reason. For that. For that yeah. reason, yeah. Because um, there, I, I don't know what happened prior, but we're pork free. So yeah. Yeah. I know we were stuck with fish sticks every Friday at the cafeteria. <laughs> uh, well, you went to Catholic school, of course. <laughs> Oh, well, it's such fun to see. I know we... fascinating. Good for you. you. I'm excited for you and what you can do. It's so important to kids to be able to understand and be more tolerant. I think of kids from other places having their food. It's just one of those baselines that... 
uh, like the common ground, the common ground, which is yeah, awesome. Connect over it. Uh, Emmy, Pamela has uh, twisted your arm to stay for food for thought, tasty yes. trivia. I understand as we yeah. move into the next hour, and we're going to do that in the first segment, right? Instead right, of the we're last, do it right now. All right, we're going to do it. Okay, so that you can be on your way. Oh gosh, yeah. but. Uh, <laughs> It's it's a horrific experience. I'm oh, sorry no. that she, she did that to you. She uh, sold it to me so much. I like, know. So All that more when we come back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back in the Hot Stove Kitchen here on Cairo Radio. I'm Tom Douglas. I'm Jackie Cross. Happy to be here. Thank you. You look much cuter than Terry Rotero, the chef in the show. No, chef-o. that's not true. Terry a, is very I think cute. he's uh, manning the oars on his boat down, <laughs> a, down the rivers of the Rhone, the Rhone River uh, in France, and seeing his mother also. Emmy Collins has stayed with us, a chef for the district chef for the Seattle Public Schools. And uh, you are willing to submit yourself to our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Brought to you by our, uh, proudly by our line of uh, Rub With Love Spice Blends and Sauces. Their usefulness is incomparable. <laughs> <laughs> they make every meal taste delicious. Look for them at Town & Country Markets or QFC. South Sound, please visit uh, the Pacific Northwest Shop in Tacoma. Far West Sports and Fife, where AA Meats in Lakewood are all over the place. Of course, you can find them online, too. Uh, just uh, look for Rub With Love anywhere you go. Pamela, we're going to play some trivia. Yes. You know how to do it at this segment of the show? Yes. It's a little confusing because um, I'm going to anoint Emmy the winner even before we play. (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute. I just told her we were going to crush her in the break. Uh, So each of my uh, unwilling contestants is getting five questions based on one of my favorite books, Deborah Madison's. Vegetable, vegetable literacy in honor of my favorite farmer, Jackie Cross. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's going to be really embarrassing when I fail this, isn't it? All right, Emmy, we're starting with you. Okay. Um, Are the feathery carrot tops edible? Yes. Yay! See, I told you she was going <laughs> to I thought you were going to make it hard. So. What? <laughs> Number two. Um, what do we call Finocchio, the cousin of carrots and celery in America? Fennel? Yes. Okay. Fennel, she said it. She thought you said Pinocchio. (laughs) We call him in the States a liar. A nose nose grower. Number three, what is the name of the spice that is the seed of the cilantro plant? Coriander. Yeah. You are killing this. You are killing this. Is it true that the stems of lovage are hollow and make great straws for Bloody Marys? Dang, I don't know that, but I'm going to say yes. Yes. <laughs> Who could make that up? <laughs> the hollow straws of lovage. Um, what is the defining characteristic of most of the stems in the mint family? Square? Yeah. <laughs> Are they? Yeah. yeah. They're square. If you ever notice and stuff like that, um, oh, okay. families come in. Our, uh, our public school kids are in good hands. <laughs> yeah, She's great. a smart one, Mr. She's Grinch. Smart. <laughs> Jackie Cross, Uh-oh. are artichokes in the sunflower family or the brassica family? Sunflower. Yes. Um, most cooks don't really need to know this, but with regards to chicories and endives, which one is perennial and which is an annual i never thought of either of them as being perennial um <laughs> maybe that's in a region that where the i would they don't say freeze that out. chicories have a better 
End dives are the annuals. End dive? In, yeah. And yeah. Chikars, Chikars. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you got two right. Number three. If your lettuce has bolted, what part of the plant is still recommended to eat? You can eat the outside leaves, just yep. not the center. And this recommends the stalk. And the stalk. And the stalk. Just not the Three correct. <laughs> I tell you, I can't imagine why I lose with you uh, making the questions every week. French, number four, French settlers brought the Brussels sprouts to the United States. What state did they first plant them in? Pennsylvania. <laughs> Far away in Louisiana. <laughs> no idea. Um, in the turnip, is there more vitamins in the greens or the root? Greens. Yes. Four out of five. Emmy cracking it, it in the lead. That the French went to Louisiana. I should have thought that through better. Damn it. All right, Mr. Douglas. The nightshade vegetable family have been described as both lethal and luscious. Please name some of the luscious members. Tomatoes. Yes. Keep going. Well, depends if you like them or not, but eggplants. Yes. Yeah. And can you name one of the lethal members of the nightshade? No. Point five. Tobacco, belladonna, mandrake. I was going to say rhubarb. If you want to um, reduce the heat from a chili pepper, which part should you use less of? Not the stems, but it's the little ribs and seeds. Exactly. Correct. Uh, What is the efficient method for slicing a pepper? This That's, could be that, up for debate, could, I know. This could be up for debate and a long story thing. because I get so mad at my cooks when they just slice the top off and then they slice the bottom off because they want perfect little strips of pepper. Yes. It's like, dang it, work harder at this. I personally go on the outside of the pepper, especially jalapeno, and just cut around the ribs and cut around the seeds, uh, and it works beautifully. But I don't see anyone else use that technique. It <laughs> turns out that I'm the only... Uh, the only one who does that. But I go on the outside. Uh, you like to cut them in half, and some people then just pull the stem off and, and do that and then trim the ribs. But mine is much more efficient. <laughs> I think we've got to give them that one, even though that, that's not what, how Deborah Madison What does Deborah do say? Well, she likes to make cut off the top and bottom, but you still have to use them. Oh, okay. And do the slit and open it up and then... The knife yeah. on the inside yeah. to get that out the veins. I guarantee that's going to cut some fingers. <laughs> Should we give him that point or not? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Eggplant by itself is extremely uncaloric, but with its spongy texture, it can really drink up enormous quantities of cream or oil. What cooking method could you recommend to avoid soaking up so much Fat. Well, I would say have a different vegetable because that's, <laughs> that's the only way to eat eggplant is you if it's soaked in olive oil and baba ganoush or something of that nature. Do you agree, Emmy? I agree. Yeah, exactly. Like, why would you eat it if it wasn't soaked in fat? It doesn't make sense. What do you? I'm not sure what you want. You can roast it on a grill. That's what I was looking for. And that gives for. it flavor, but you're not going to serve it that way. At some point, you have to add the add fat. Add the to fat. It. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Deborah was trying to get to that point of either roasting or broiling, and then it wouldn't be as fat-laden. It wouldn't take up as much. I would say that the the best, the least amount of fat I use is when I cut the circles half inch, and then I brush them with a little bit of olive oil, and then I grill them. Yes. Then you could suffer through it. 
<laughs> you have one more. Oh, I have another. Uh, They're what, delicious. What are two techniques for reducing the impact of the fumes from cutting onions? Uh, you can wear scuba gear. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> Number one. Uh, and there's, uh, I think it's a wives' tale out there. Uh, no offense to the wives out there. But there's one where you, I believe you take the, the stem side off first, and supposedly it doesn't gas as much. Uh, it's nonsense. It's like the whole idea that you can leave the avocado pit with the avocado, and it's not going to turn brown. It's nonsense. <laughs> Is that true, Emmy? He's not cooperating. I, I, I feel like it helps a little bit. No. Which one? The avocado. The avocado yeah. one? I, I haven't heard the onion one. It just keeps it yeah, better where the pit is. At least that part doesn't turn <laughs> yeah, Okay, what's the answer? The answer is to keep them in the refrigerator, or you could drop them in the freezer for 10 minutes, or soak them in a bowl of cold water. I've always just run my knife under cold water as I I'm bet doing that it, and then stuff, and it, ah. and it keeps them from spraying. Up That's in your a good you hat. Guys, you guys are loco. Uh, Emmy, congratulations on your huge win. We appreciate you. Keep up the good work at the Seattle Public Schools. We appreciate you. And I'm sure the families do also of the kids that are getting nutritious meals. When we come back, it's time for rosé season here at the Hot Stove Society on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. It's Tom Douglas. And Jackie Cross. Sitting. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yep. And so do you think we should sink Terry's boat? Do you want to keep the gig? No, I just want to fly over and join him. Can oh. we just go? <laughs> <laughs> Terry's still on the rivers of France cooking away and go visiting markets. I don't think he's cooking. I think he's visiting markets. I think somebody else does the cooking. Cooking part? Yeah. Let's talk rosés. Pamela, this was on your list of things to do. Uh, tell me tell me about uh your intention here and the guy that's on the phone. My mission is to spread the word about what noble wine, noble wines, rose they can be. I think for a while they had a bad rap as just being uh, pool party stuff, but there's a lot of wonderful winemakers working with fantastic grape varieties, and nobody knows that better than my adorable husband Michael Tier at Pike and Western. Yay! Hey, hi, Mike. Hi, Tom. This is, uh, I'm calling from the sunny Pike Place Market. <laughs> is it really? It's always sunny in the Pike Place oh, Market. Oh, I see. You know, sort of like that show, it's always sunny in mm-hmm. Philadelphia? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why we have rosé all the time. We have rosé year-round now because it's always sunny down here. It's always sunny in the Pike Place <laughs> <Perfect>. Market. <laughs> <laughs> what so, should we be drinking? Well, you know, everybody gets excited for the new vintage every year, which is a beautiful thing because it's, it's good for business. This year, as you might imagine, things are coming in a little more leisurely than they normally do, but uh, we are starting to see a, a pretty good flow of rosés from both local and uh, European and probably South American, but uh, there's a lot still to come, so if you, you, know, you don't find your favorite right away, be patient. It'll probably show up in the next month or so. Last year, it was about September when they all showed up because of all the shipping issues. I'm just finishing up one that was, that came in in November. Yeah. Wow, that's but, crazy. But the, but the good news, that brings up a perfect point, is some of the better quality rosés from 2020 are drinking better now than they did when they first came in because they do get better for about a year or so. We drink them all so quick sometimes that we're missing out on what they can really be. So I encourage people to buy a little extra and drink it through the fall and winter, too. That's 
you know, not just uh, during our sunny summer month. Mm-hmm. month yeah, at the month. rate that the weather's going right now, you do just need to drink them anytime. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> we might right. not see the Be- sun again. Because if you pour a glass of rosé, it will become sunnier. Well, Pamela, you are, you're, a long-time, uh, you're a long-time wine merchant uh, in your past history. Do you, do you have a favorite grape varietal uh, that you like made into a rosé? So a rosé, basically, if I correct me if I'm wrong, all of you wine heads, uh, is just a, a grape that has been crushed, but it's been left on the skin for a short time to, to leach some color into it, but not as much as a red wine would be. Is that true? Go for it, Mike. Very, very short time, generally, yeah. yeah. You know, there's a whole category now called skin contact wines, which are white wines left on the skin for a long time. Mm-hmm. But rosés are red grapes, and they get uh, sometimes as little as two to three hours. Sometimes it'd be an overnight cold soak, depending on the grape variety. But they're they're not looking to extract uh, any tannins from the skins of the grape; just a little color. And the most widely used grape, red grape, is what in the world? Well, you know, it's, it's getting more diverse, but I'd have to say, uh, if I haven't looked up statistics, but I would guess Grenache is probably one of the top, if not the top, used grape for uh, rosé. Grenache is grown around the world. It's the, the main grape of uh, southern France. Uh, so there's a lot of Grenache rosé. You see a lot more Grenache rosé than, say, Syrah rosé because Grenache is more plentiful. But what I have here today is a real variety. There's some Grenache in Western. I chose things just to highlight some of the different rosés we have available at Pike and Western, and, it could be, and the people could buy around town, too. Let's hear it. Well, I'm starting with two local ones that are just out on the market, two of my favorite uh, small wineries that uh, I deal directly with one and semi-directly with the other. Um, the first one is a small winery called Lobo Hills, and it's run by a, a wonderful gentleman named Tony Dollar. Yes, that's his real name. And uh, he makes a Cabernet Franc Rosé from the Horse Seven Hills uh, that is just now coming out. And I like it because it, Cabernet Franc is not a, it's not a lot of Cabernet Franc Rosés. The folks at Chinook have long made one. There's Loire Valley Cabernet Franc Rosés, but it's not a big uh, variety for uh, rosés. But it makes a really nice, crunchy, light red color. Um, it's low in alcohol, 12.5%, very snappy. Uh, he doesn't muck with it much. It gets some time on the leaves. It has a little body. But uh, Tony does a wonderful job with with whites, too, uh, which I always appreciate because they're always on the lookout for good Washington whites. So, and uh, he, he keeps his prices reasonable. His 2021 Cabernet Franc Rosé goes for sixteen fifty a bottle. And I highly recommend it. Perfectly reasonable, yeah. Yeah. And then the other one comes from uh, a winery I've worked closely with for many years, uh, and we probably talked about it on the show, Sinfine Winery, down in the Columbia Gorge. And they make a little more, I quote, serious rosé. Um, I think they've been re- refining their style, and uh, Pamela actually drank this 2021 Sinfine, which is a blend of Carignan and Merved, which are classic Provençal grape varieties. And also, great varieties used in the production of one of the more famous rosés in the world, Bandol rosé. And this 2021 Sincline really reminded me of a Bandol rosé. It had a little more texture, uh, a little less acidity, but beautiful fruit, and still only 12.7 alcohol. I always look for slightly lighter alcohol in rosés because you want to drink them and have a couple glasses. And, and uh, I think they've done a great job. That goes for $29 a bottle. And so it's a little more premium price. So they only made about 500 cases of it. So it's out there now. 
But if you wait till later in the summer, you won't find it anywhere. Mike, you know how I de-alcohol my rosé wine. I pour it over a big glass of ice. Big glass of ice. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and some wines you need to do that, too. But it's nice when they start out reasonably low in alcohol, I think. And then the wines tend to taste a little fresher, too. That would lead me to the next one, which is a a longtime favorite of mine from Italy. And most people don't think of uh, Italian rosés, but we have good success with them. And it's from the Veneto region, which is famous for Suave and Valpolicella and a lighter red called Bartolino. This is a uh, Bartolino Rosé from a producer called Cavalchina. Their official name for it is a Chiaretto, which is a classic Italian name for a a light, lightly pressed red wine. But it's a rosé. Very fresh, has a very easy drinking quality. Uh, there's something about this wine that I, I've always just appreciated how easy it is to drink. They use native um, Italian varieties that most of us don't know, mostly Corvina, which is their main red grape. They give it a little skin contact overnight, ferment everything together, and they don't let the wine go through the second fermentation called malolactic to keep it crisp. So it's really bright and fresh. As I say, it's 12.5 alcohol, mm-hmm. and that sells for $19 a bottle. Perfect. Perfect when you're having a little spring pasta. That's all we have time for today, Mike. All those three wines you mentioned are available at your shop? Yeah, at my shop, and you should be able to find them. At, uh, I, I would suggest some of the uh, better independent grocery stores in the area would be your best bet for them. Jackie, before we run out of here, do you have a, you, you deal with a lot of the locals over there in Prosser. Do you have a favorite rosé? Yeah, I was just going to give a little shout-out to my friend Jessica Munell, who has a winery called Watoma Springs in downtown Prosser. And her new rosé, which is a 100% Syrah rosé, I think is quite lovely. I'm, uh, and my favorite is the Chinook Cabernet Franc rosé. I drink that every year as a process. Pam, shout out to any particular rosé. Uh, I'm loving them all. <laughs> loving them all. Just bring out the sun. Let's go. Bring out the sun. Up next, Kevin Morse is here. He's the co-founder of Karen Spring Mills. He's going to join us uh, on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove Society in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia. Come visit us sometime. We've got fascinating guests, wonderful hosts, including Jackie Cross here today. Great uh, to be here. Sitting in for Mr. Rotoro, the chef in the chapeau. I'm Tom Douglas. Kevin Morris has joined us. He's co-founder of Karen Springs Mills, uh, and he's going to join us for a couple of segments because there's so much to talk about when it comes to flour. First of all, where can people find your flour? Because every time I look for it, it's, it's out of stock. <laughs> Well, uh, you can find our flower in most of the mark, the independent markets here yeah. in Seattle, Met Market, Town & Country, PCC, PCC others, and then you can our website. said Met Market has a great display right now oh, of good. variety. Yeah. So. And it's got web- a distinctive like white with blue striped packaging it is. bag. Yeah. It is. And you can also buy it direct from us online. Oh, awesome. You can order oh, to have it, have it mailed or just... Drive by and pick it up on a Saturday. Oh, yeah. we Road trip. Yeah. Road trip. Perfect. I'd love yeah. uh, Jackie uh, has, uh, like many people during the, the lockdown, <laughs> kind of had the opportunity to kind of have some time to bake bread, which a lot of people right. found themselves with time on their Took hands. Took the whole, went down the sourdough rabbit hole and... Mm-hmm. Hard to come up from again. <laughs> it can be. It's addictive. frustrating. Well, it's but fun. But to so learn fun. too. As the guy who does the dishes in the house, the whole 
sourdough crusting thing on the jar, the starter jar. <laughs> that makes me crazy. It's really hard to wash. <laughs> I know it is. It's like I, cement on there. there. There's no such thing as a, a, a neat starter jar. <laughs> okay, Kevin. So tell us about how you got started down this road, Karen yeah. Springs. Though, tell us, tell yeah. us your background here. Sure. My, I'll, I'll try to make it brief. It hasn't been a straight line, Chef. Yeah. Um, well, you just told me you were selling me pigs, and I didn't I, even realize I was. it. I am. Um, I've spent the past 35 years doing everything from farming. I used to raise. We had one of the first pasture pork operations in the state. Uh, I worked for the Nature Conservancy for a decade hey. as their working lands director, trying to find ways to align conservation and food production. And I'll save a lot of the other details, but what I discovered over 35 years is all the things that I cared about and that were important to our community and our place here, like clean food, clean water, viable agriculture, vibrant economies. Um, a lot of the things that we're struggling with were driven by some of the outcomes of our industrial food system. And so I wanted to create a new model in the Skagit that uh, would actually enhance our environment, make our community more prosperous, healthy, and resilient. And so that was my my uh, intention and inspiration for starting uh-huh. the mill. And in the, the side note of that is it preserves farmland, the beautiful yeah. part of what we love about the Skagit. Uh, instead of having housing developments on it, it preserves farmland. That's right. I mean, the, the best way to preserve farmland, well, easements are one. The other is keeping the farmers economically viable, mm-hmm. and that's a, a core component of our mill. Pam's been doing a lot of work on that herself with the uh, Washington Farmland Trust. What a great organization. It, thank you. They, We're pretty it, proud of it. They are a great organization. I worked with them extensively in my previous oh, life, too. The whole community in the Skagit. I don't know. I, I find it interesting, Chef, that um, a lot of people don't even know about the Skagit, even though we're 60 miles north mm-hmm. of Seattle. Mm-hmm. We're like the most bountiful diverse farming system mm-hmm. in the country that nobody has ever heard about. Well, they know from the tulips, <laughs> yes. essentially, is what they know about the Skagit, yeah. but they don't even think about wheat and the things that you're doing they now. Yeah. Well, the bread lab up there with Steve Jones sort of put the whole f- flour and wheat and stuff like that sort of on the map and stuff and brought attention to it a little bit. So I think more people know now about about it through him and now yeah. with um, organizations or farms like yours yeah. that are actually direct com- consumer is awesome well and that's that's a great lead into how we started mm-hmm. when i talk about how we started the, the best analogy i can think of is an old-fashioned barn raising <laughs> uh, the whole community this wasn't my idea like mm-hmm. i was lucky to be the steward and the entrepreneur that was able to start this but we had partners like the bread lab that were thought leaders in showing that serendipitous you're talking about wine grapes wheat has terroir yeah, there's different yeah. varieties of wheat that can be grown in different places. I've tasted wheat that has uh, like Christmas spice taste or honey taste, yeah. and so the bread lab put a huge amount of thought and energy into the concept. The port of Skagit decided to invest in value-added agriculture infrastructure. The farmers were growing these non-commodity grains that we right. mill before we even had money to pay them. Yeah, there was lots of indigenous uh, wheat varieties for a while and stuff, and then everyone moved to the no-till or to the commercial yeah. giant um, farms and stuff like that, and they went to more commercial, commercially viable wheats, and we kind of lost these beautiful native wheats that we used to have. Yeah, and the Bread Lab takes all those good things of the native and the modern hybrids uh, because we have to... We have to meet a lot of criteria to be successful. It has to yield for the farmer, have good yeah. disease resistance, uh, and then it has to mill and bake well. Mm-hmm. And what most people don't know, over the past 100 years, we've 
never really selected grains that go into those commodity systems for things other than yield and protein. Mm. And so flavor... And yield we understand, but why protein? Protein is something that um, indicates strength yeah. in the flour, so it can withstand... The rise, right? The, or The rise holding in the gases to give your bread that great spring. And also, in the more modern times, the, the mechanical manipulation of the flour and dough. And so we've gone back in time a little bit and actually look at things like flavor. Uh, when we, <laughs> Who knew? When we, Who knew that you should be considering it from the flavor angle? And so, I mean, really, if you think about what flour has been like for 100 years... You've had chocolate and vanilla as a baker or chef. Now we have a palette. It's just whole wheat and white, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Now we have a palette of flavors, all these different varietals. And um, it's been a revelation to a lot of our our customers, and myself included. My Nana, forgive me, Nana. My Italian, I thought her bread and pizza was the best (laughs) growing up. But when I tasted bread, baked at the bread lab, and by some of our customers, I was blown away by the flavor difference. Mm -hmm. I'm the biggest convert. um, Does each farmer um, or wheat grower concentrate on one variety, or Uh, are they blending? We contract, so a couple ways we're different from the big mills and how we've evolved. We source directly from the farm. We source directly from the farmer for those individual identity preserved grains. One farmer might grow two or three different varietals, okay. but the way we store them, mill them, and then bag them, they're all the identity preserved grains, which is very different from the commodity wheats. So what we're seeing on the packaging is identifying the varietal. Yes, just like specialty coffee or chocolates. I can tell you which farmers grew the flour in that bag, <clears throat> And um, trace that from the granary all the way through the mill into the bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, keeping them awesome. separate must be yeah. costly and labor intensive. It is, um, mostly because the, the, the commodity infrastructure that's in place is massive. Mm-hmm. And they really don't worry about separation and traceability. Right. You know, the biggest mill in this country makes 5 million pounds of flour in one day. Whoa. That's, that's the scale. One of the things we've discovered, myself included, is not many people really know how flour is made. Not, a, not everybody has thought about where the grains come from. Right. And those grains that are made um, and used to produce industrial flour, those, those systems focus on the cheapest grain possible, low margin, and high output. Okay, so they're buying and trading grain from all over the world, India, China. Kazakhstan, Kansas, Ukraine, Ukraine. Ukraine. Look what's happening now that these global supply chains are breaking down. And so there's no traceability. You don't necessarily know how that wheat was grown, what kind of conditions the farmer was in or what's on the wheat. So we're offering a cleaner, traceable, fresh milled flour that has flavor. Is is freshness a a criteria in flour? Like uh, on these Mm -hmm. global conglomerates, you would think that... That wheat might be two or three years old before it gets ground into flour the as it makes its way around the world. That's right. I mean, the grain can be old, and then after it's milled, the modern milling process to give us the white flour extracts the parts of the wheat berry, the bran and the germ, which actually contain all the flavor and natural nutrition. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why we have enriched flour today, because when they first started making it 100 years ago, people got sick because they weren't getting the nutrients they needed. Uh-huh. And it was about 40 or 50% of their caloric intake. So 
that way flour can sit in a silo or a bag for two years. The baking quality of fresh flour is exponentially better mm-hmm. than that old flour. Plus, when we're stone milling, we've, we've harnessed the old craft of stone milling in a modern system. We're intentionally milling the germ, which is all the fats and oils and flavor are, and the bran or the fibers and mineral into the flour. That's where the flavor comes from. Interesting. Uh, let's go back to Ukraine for a second. You know, I'm, I'm just devastated every day when I watch the news. I can't. Still, 100 days later, can't take my eyes off of it. What is that going to do to the food system? We already know what the whole Russian gas thing is doing to prices of gas, yeah. uh, which is also going to affect uh, you know, the food system. But uh, Ukraine was a huge supplier for a lot of countries for, yeah. for flour. It's, it's a real, it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now it's just the farmers can't farm it. They can't harvest it, they can't mill it, and they can't ship it if they can. No, and many of the, including ours, but many of the poorer countries in the world are going to suffer because they're relying on that Ukrainian and Russian like Ethiopia, I think, flour. is like 80% Ukrainian wheat. Is, yeah. I mean, that's huge. The other thing that's happening is a lot of the fertilizer comes out of Ukraine and Russia. And so our input costs have almost doubled this spring. So you're going to see a rise in costs of flour, and you're going to see shortages, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, we're lucky in that we have a local supply chain, and we don't rely on imported mm-hmm. wheat. So, again, it makes us more resilient. We are going to have – you're going to see higher costs, but we're only going to raise our costs to meet the increased costs of the farmer. So you will see some disruption, Chef. Right, exactly. So when we come back, to, we're going to explore, uh, along with Jackie, her bread journey – but, uh, you know, if you if you want to, while you're listening, if you can, uh, pull up the Karen Wheat Springs or Karen Springs uh, website and you'll see all the different types of flour. And we're going to discuss a little bit uh, about that when we come back and maybe talk about have, have you taken up making bread yet yourself? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. OK, good. We're going to talk about the successes and failures of uh, becoming a new bread chef, because I know my team over at the Dahlia Bakery that makes bread. It's a craft. It is. They yeah. work on it, and they think about it when they're sleeping. Yeah. It's, uh, also, Geraldine Brousseau is going to, uh, we're going to tell you about the class that she's doing about bread right here at the Hot Stove. When we come back on Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society show from the beautiful Hot Stove Society kitchens and studio here in downtown Seattle. Uh, Jackie Cross sitting in for Chef in the Chapeau today. Thank you for having me. You've been enjoying it so far? It's delightful. This segment should be right up your alley because uh, so like many this. of the COVID bakers out there, <laughs> you kind of really dove head into making your own bread. Uh, and uh, the Karen Springs, at the time, uh, how long have you been in the marketplace? Uh, we've been in production five years now. Five years. So it was a pretty new yeah. thing to try and yeah. find out there. Kevin Morris is the co-founder of Karen Springs Mills, uh, and you're up in the Skagit Valley. And we talked in the last segment about uh, preserving the way of life for farmers, both in uh, with what Pam does with the, what is the conservation group? Washington Farmland Trust. Yeah. And saving farmland. Saving yes. farmland. And what you're so doing important. by actually making farming viable enough that people can make a real living instead of just, well, as you call it. Fa- fa- giving an outlet to small farmers so they don't have to sell to commodity yeah. Um, yeah. No, mills awesome. and stuff like that. It's amazing. So when I look on your website, Karen Springs Mills, and that's C-A-I-R-N, Spring Mills, Karen Spring Mills, um, you have lots of different flowers on we there, do. and that's the unique in itself is to be able to choose as a bread baker a profile that 
really suits you, right? And yes. you also have on your website uh, a, a list of for best four because nobody really knows outside of using all-purpose flour or 100% durum for, say, right. making pasta or whatever. Nobody really knows the difference in these wheats. Correct. But because everyone's got a different gluten quality and protein uh, quality and all and that. So flavor. I yeah. love how useful your website is to determine what flour would work best for what project you're working on. Biscuits or pies or pizza or bread dough. Jackie, what have you found uh, in your experimentation over the last few years that works best for you? Um, nothing yet. I'm still working <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, we need to have yes, you I'm... up to bake at the, at the mill. <laughs> I was gifted some um, starter right at the beginning of the pandemic and stuff. So it's, it takes over your world. Mm-hmm. I was saying, uh, t- telling Pam, you feel guilty every day when you look in the refrigerator and sitting there taunting you like, take me out and do something. I, you know, started out with basic, you know, just buying commodity wheat and stuff Um and then started doing a dive into like better wheats and higher protein wheats and trying to learn like what the difference was there and what kind of difference it made to your bread. I read a lot of blogs, you yeah. know, and I just experiment around. So it's different all the time. I have not found one true recipe that um, is the, the be all end all. And every once in a while I use yeast because it's so easy. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful journey. I took up amazing. baking as we started the mm-hmm. mill, and there's so much to learn. So much to learn. And then you're also having to deal with, like, your bakers and chefs here, Mother Nature, yeah. humidity, temperature, sure. bacteria in the room, yeah, <laughs> anything that could get that. into yeah. your dough and starter. Yeah. And, and it's a, a fascinating craft. And, it, and even in. if I do repeat the recipe like two or three times, it's different each time. It can be, yeah. yeah. And doing the same thing. So well, hydration is, I think, probably the biggest issue. Yeah. yeah. So uh, give people some shortcuts. So, you know, the people want to get started right now. What, what are some things you've learned that you say, don't do this? <laughs> hmm. I think that doing, I mean, doing the, sl- the slow, a little bit cooler rise gives you so much more flavor. And I think that when I first started out, it was all about like, you know, trying to get it jump started and get it going a little bit quicker. But it's really to do good sourdough bread. It takes a couple days and you have to put the time in. Um, I mean, a lot of it is off hands. You know, you're not doing it, anything with it other than um, watching it rise slowly or putting it in the refrigerator yeah. to to continue for a couple of days and stuff but i don't know how about you you said you were becoming a bread baker yeah, also I, with, through I, this i don't know if i could ever call bread baking easy i would just say no. a couple things get your hands in the dough yeah feel um don't always rely on your mechanical mixer so you get a sense of how the dough feels when you're mixing it and how and what it feels like when it's ready to actually mm-hmm. shape or bake and that's half the fun of the well, journey mm-hmm. uh, and don't be afraid to fail mm-hmm. we're all going to fail so just dive in and have fun with it and so it. it's still going to be out yeah. it's still going to be I, something and, it, might, it might not spring up to you know great heights but it's still going to be and then naturally leaven versus yeah. yeasted yeasted is easier for sure yeasted is easier, and if you but, don't have as much time yeah. in your day to do the naturally leaven sourdough type breads Dive into the yeasted ones, and it'll still give you a great experience, and then you can start playing with a starter. For sure. So yeah, naturally sure. leaven, are you talking about wild yeast in the air, yes. or are you talking about a sourdough starter? Yeah, the wild yeast in the air. You know, that's sourdough starter and leaven, natural leavening are similar. Yeah. And that you're taking flour and water, exposing it to the environment, and it starts to colonize the yeast that are in the air, mm-hmm. which could be different 
any place you go, mm-hmm. which also adds to the flavor, flavor and the fermentation time and the speed at which you're starter. So that brings out more flavor and unlocks, unlocks more of the natural nutrition mm-hmm. of the flour and grains when you bake that way. So that's why you see so much of that trend catching on now. And it also makes the bread uh, more digestible. Right. Yeah. It's much, I mean, people that are gluten intolerant and stuff can often eat uh, sourdough breads and stuff um, without um, as much problem and just because of the natural yeast and leavening and stuff in it. That's right. It, it breaks down the mm-hmm. proteins mm-hmm. and the gluten mm-hmm. more. It's easier. And, and releases more of that nutrition mm-hmm. as well. So you say on your website uh, for bread, it's the, uh, you would suggest the organic Skagit 1109 uh, or the uh, Sequoia all-purpose flour. So yeah. what's, what's, like, what's going on there? We specialize in these individual identities or flours, and we've categorized them into the categories that people are used to, bread flour, all-purpose flour, pastry flour. So that and the are, basic difference is gluten content? Bread flour, higher protein, stronger. Higher protein, yeah. All-purpose flour, a little bit lower protein. Mostly, those are both mostly made with hard wheats, hard red uh, spring or hard red winter. And then pastry flour is usually made from a soft wheat. Okay. And so lower, lower protein. All so, milled to the same for the um, most part? For the most part, we stone mill our, all of ours to a European style spec of, it's called a type 85, mm-hmm. which um, is an indication of the natural nutrition and mineral content in mm-hmm. the flour. Mm-hmm. So those are... Something similar. We wanted to make something that was similar to what people were used to, but had more natural flavor and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And we've also gone to great lengths on the website to have recipes for each flower so the customer can have a positive experience when they're just getting started. So can you explain to me a stupid question? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Oh, boy. Answer. (laughs) You have in front of me trailblazer bread flour, trailblaze bread flour, but you don't have it under... Your flour for making bread on the website. Well, I don't know what happened. Maybe that's for <laughs> I'll have to talk to my eyes, but that's our best-selling flour. Yeah, that's it's, the one I see the most around is the Trailblazer, for sure. It's, it's a higher uh, protein, stronger uh, mm-hmm. flour made from hard red spring wheat that really has a great fermentation tolerance and makes great country loaves and mm-hmm. rustic breads. So on something like that on the Trailblazer, is that... A blend of a couple of hard wheats, or is it one specific? Traditionally, it's just been one specific. Uh Last year, we had droughts, historic droughts and heat, and so we had some uh, lower yields. And so we've taken another, this year we've taken Yokora Rojo and another hard red spring wheat we call Skagit Red and blended them to make our Trailblazer select. Uh But they're all hard red spring wheats grown by farmers we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't be intimidated by the names and the differences. I think we've... We've tried to provide a roadmap on the website for yeah. how to use it. I mean, it's plants. really, I find it very helpful. What's, what's like a, just a year in a wheat field? Like, a, yeah. kind of run through real quickly. Just yeah, real quick. Wheat is planted two times of the year, two winter times and year. spring. Mm-hmm. So that's how you get your hard red winter wheats and soft winter wheats and the spring. And they're all harvested in roughly between July and August. The spring wheats tend to have higher protein content. The winter wheats tend to have better yields, but lower protein. And that's what your all-purpose flowers mostly come make. from the winter. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And once you mill, I mean, once you got it in the field, you take it right to the mill? Or? Yeah, the farmers combine it. They either bring it straight to uh, their farm or to a granary we work with locally that stores, cleans, and brings the grain to the mill. Cool. Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, co-founder of Karen Springs Mills. Just as I mentioned here, Gerilyn Brousseau is doing a class here on these very flowers. She's helped uh, develop some of the flowers themselves. Uh, June 11th, there's, I think you said six 
Six spots Six left. Spots Hurry left. up. Sign up today. All right. Uh, just go to the Hot Stove website. But thank you again uh, for the work that you're doing. We appreciate it as humans. Yes. Thank you for having yeah. me here. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for all you do as well. Well, that's it for today. Uh, you're listening to us on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. Also, remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show in Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.